You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. A deer haunted forest, crowded with pines and hemlocks, a carpet of needles beneath your feet, grouse in the underbrush. Welcome to the woods outside of the last archive. I'm Jill Lepore. This episode, we're celebrating an anniversary. Sort of. The anniversary of a dream, an alternate history. We're imagining what the world might be like if 50 years ago, in 1972, Americans had ratified an Environmental Rights Amendment, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, granting not only protection, but representation to the natural world. This did not happen. But this episode, I want to wonder about what the world would be like if it had happened. I want to think about the road not taken. I want to rekindle a spirit of imagination about what could still happen. To start, let's go back to where, by my reckoning, the American environmental movement began, in a seaside cabin on an island in Maine in 1962, when Rachel Carson issued a warning about pesticides and petroleum companies. So step through a screen door into Rachel Carson's cabin in Maine on the edge of the sea. Now, uh, to these people, apparently, the the balance of nature was something that was um, repealed as soon as man came on the scene. Well, you might just as well assume that you could repeal the, the law of gravity. Rachel Carson had been writing for a long time by this point about the natural world, especially about the ocean. 
She loved mucking about in the shoreline, where she studied the tiniest creatures eddying in tide pools. She was fascinated by their interdependence. The balance of nature is built of a series of interrelationships between living things and between living things and their environment. In 1963, a reporter from CBS News had driven up to her remote cabin, it's on a little spit of an island, to ask her some questions. Carson had just published Silent Spring, a lyrical and terrifying account of what pesticides were doing to the natural world. Pesticides kill insects, sure, but they also kill birds that eat insects and the animals that eat the birds. You can't just kill one thing, Carson demonstrated. You put out a poison, it poisons everything because everything is connected to everything else. There would come one day, she warned, an entirely silent spring, no crickets chirp, no frogs peep, no birdsong. The pesticide industry waged a campaign to try to portray Carson as a silly old lady. It didn't work. We did a whole episode about Carson in season one. It's called For the Birds. Anyway, in 1962, Silent Spring became a bestseller, and Carson was hailed as a visionary, Her book fundamentally changed how people thought about the environment. President Kennedy read it, and Carson testified before the Senate. Carson died less than two years later. But she'd raised in the public mind a new and urgent concern about all kinds of environmental problems. Then, 1969, NASA sent men to the moon, and their photographs showed the Earth, the whole Earth, small and fragile, something to protect, a pale blue dot, as if made of glass, a blue marble. In September 1969, two months after men from the Earth landed on the moon, Moon Day, a maverick Wisconsin senator named Gaylord Nelson proposed a celebration, a national holiday. He called it Earth Day. Environment is all of America and its problems. It's the rats in the ghetto. It's a hungry child in a land of affluence. Nelson modeled Earth Day after anti-war teach-ins, With all that urgency, life and death at stake, the future of humanity itself. I don't think there's any other issue viewed in its broadest sense, which is as critical to mankind as the issue of the quality of the environment in which we live. Gaylord Nelson had grown up in Wisconsin. When he was 14, he'd started a campaign to plant trees in his hometown, Clear Lake. As governor of Wisconsin, he'd made environmental protection his top priority. He taxed tobacco and used the money to buy land for public parks. In the Senate, he dedicated himself to getting the environment on the national political agenda. In his first year, he co-sponsored the Clean Water Act. He was also the first person to propose an environmental rights amendment. In a speech in the Senate on January 19, 1970, Nelson proposed a constitutional amendment that read, Every person has the inalienable right to a decent environment. People propose amendments all the time that never go anywhere. But still, it planted a seed. I've been thinking a lot lately about amending the Constitution and why it's so hard to do, and when it got so hard to do. In the 1970s, it looked like another amendment, the Equal Rights Amendment, banning discrimination on the basis of sex, would surely be ratified. In the end, it wasn't. But in 1970, when Gaylord Nelson proposed an environmental rights amendment, it just didn't seem that crazy. In 1971, the 26th Amendment was ratified. It lowered the voting age to 18. In the 1970s, in other words, 
you could still ratify amendments to the Constitution. On January 22nd, three days after Gaylord Nelson proposed his Environmental Rights Amendment, Richard Nixon, the president, threw his support behind this idea in his State of the Union address. The great question of the 70s is, shall we surrender to our surroundings or shall we make our peace with nature and begin to make reparations for the damage we have done to our air, to our land, and to our water? Nixon, in other words, seemed to have embraced Rachel Carson's agenda. Restoring nature to its natural state is a cause beyond party and beyond factions. It has become a common cause of all the people of this country. The scale of the crisis was obvious to everyone. By 1970, the United States had become a very trashy-looking place. It was embarrassing. Pollution, smog, litter, everywhere. The Cuyahoga River in Cleveland had caught fire only months before, and not for the first time. The water was so entirely polluted with oil-slick debris that when sparks from a passing train flicked over the river, it went up in flames, flames as high as a five-story building. Public outrage had been so intense that Nixon had signed into law the National Environmental Policy Act, which helped establish the Environmental Protection Agency. Through our years of past carelessness, we incurred a debt to nature, and now that debt is being called. The program I shall propose to Congress will be the most comprehensive and costly program in this field in America's history. I think about it this way. Post-war America, people are finally fed up with the ravages of the Industrial Revolution. The pollution, the filthy factories, the dead fish in the rivers, the dying oceans, the smog. To stop all that, you've got to pass some laws. One way to drum up support? Invent a national holiday. Call it Earth Day. Tell people about it. Get them out on the streets. Run ads and stir up news coverage on television across the country. Do you feel as though all this is a reaction to publicity that's been uh, blasted across the nation? It's going to be a real, real big political move, probably bigger than any other political move we've ever seen in this country. Earth Day wasn't a federal holiday, more like a rally day. But also more than rally day, governors agreed to honor Earth Day. So did a lot of musicians, poets, politicians. In Washington, the House and Senate adjourned for the day. Practically every senator and congressman was off to make speeches on the year's most popular and least risky election issue. April 22, 1970, that first Earth Day, took place all over the country, in cities and towns, at state capitals, along polluted highways. People picked up trash on riverbanks, from the Kalamazoo to the Mississippi. Schools canceled classes, kindergartners did crafts, college students marched in the streets, and middle schoolers went on field trips wearing baseball caps and muck boots, carrying binoculars, as they trudged through the woods to a lake whose shoreline was covered with trash. This is pollution, and it's put here by man, all right? So this isn't anything that nature itself has done. When you look at nature, you're going to find it's a pretty beautiful thing. 28 boys and girls from Council Bluffs, Iowa, were out early this Earth Day morning. They're members of Mrs. Willard Hopper's sixth grade science class. Bright, full of answers, another triumph of hope over experience. And pretty much everywhere that first Earth Day, people sang. (laughs) 
In Boston, protesters held a die-in at Logan Airport to call attention to the pollution caused by airplanes. They pretended to die there. There were teach-ins and cleanups. Protesters wore surgical masks to call attention to air pollution. Parts of New York City banned cars for the day. Protesters in Chicago called for the elimination of the internal combustion engine. And in Washington, civil rights leader James Farmer tied the fledgling environmental movement to racial justice. The garbage, the trash, the carbon monoxide, the junk. Who suffers most from it if it is not the poor? And so the poor, especially the ghettoized poor, the black and the brown and the red, stand to benefit first from any successes in cleaning up the environment. In Albuquerque, in the Barrelis neighborhood, the leaders of a Chicano rally made the same argument. We're going to make people understand that the, the kind of things that come from air pollution, water pollution, are the same kinds of things that cause racism, that cause poverty, that cause hunger in this country. So we're all going to be marching today, okay? Unidos, marchemos, unidos, venceremos. Viva la raza! Viva! In Philadelphia, at the Salem Zion United Church of Christ, middle-aged congregants in Sunday suits and bonnets joined their young pastor in a special Earth Day prayer. We have helped to foul up your air, pollute your streams, and clutter your earth with trash and gadgets. Now our hearts are heavy with sorrow for what we have done. But not before our sinuses and lungs warned us of great danger. Okay, nice idea, but I confess the prayer doesn't entirely work for me. Still, it's a measure of the intensity of all of this. And out of all of those meetings and marches and cleanups and conversation after conversation, came a demand for something more. Power to the earth. But what would that mean? Earth Day was the biggest protest in human history. Listening to the tape, you can feel this oceanic swell, this common knowledge that the Earth is in trouble. The sense that people will make sacrifices to save it. It sounds as though things might actually change. But listening now, you know as well as I do that things didn't change nearly as much as they needed to. I don't want to tell that story again, though. I want instead to imagine. What if that moment really had changed everything? How could it have? The answer, after this break. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers, 
back on the road fast with Location Telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The idea that everything could have turned out differently in the 1970s is not crazy. Remember that in 1970, at the very same time that Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson had come up with the idea for Earth Day, he'd come up with the idea of an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, guaranteeing people the right to a decent environment. While he was working on that, some states started trying to guarantee the same thing. The first to succeed in 1971 was Pennsylvania. The state ratified its own environmental rights amendment by popular referendum by a margin of four to one. So people who wanted to change the federal constitution to save the planet were getting pretty excited. It all seemed so promising, so promising that environmental advocacy groups pressed the case. They came up with another way, a fascinating way, to think about how to grant power to the earth. That idea sprouted up in California. The Walt Disney Company was about to build a ski resort in Mineral King Valley. The Sierra Club sued to stop the plan, but the court said it lacked standing. The Sierra Club challenged the permit, permitting this to go on. And the case went up to the Ninth Circuit, and the the Forest Service said, look, you, the Sierra Club, don't have standing. Uh, Maybe this is a wrong to issue the permit. But you're not injured. You as a club are not injured. That's USC law professor Christopher Stone from an old interview. At the time, he followed the case very closely. When I saw that case, I thought, this is in a way sort of silly. Uh, This is an important decision uh, as to whether to develop the Mineral King Valley in this way. Uh, I'm not sure how it should come out. But at least it should be heard. And if the problem of its being heard is that this club was not injured, suffered no injury. Why not just say, look, the the injury is suffered by Mineral King Valley. The injury is suffered by the valley. Stone decided to write a law review article. It's called, Should Trees Have Standing? Stone starts off talking about the Sierra Club versus Mineral King Valley case. But like most big legal arguments, 
Stone's article made a very general claim, a legal innovation. He argued that trees, and any other part of the natural world, should have standing in courts of law as persons. After all, a corporation can be a person. So can a ship. So can your dog, if you leave your dog your estate and your will. Why not trees and valleys and rivers and streams? Stone didn't want humans to protect the environment. He wanted the environment itself to bear rights. He knew this might strike some people as a nutty idea, but he also felt the time had come for big, bold ideas because of how bad he thought things would be in 50 years' time. There's a part of his article where he writes about that, and I find it uncanny, having been written in 1972. He wrote, Scientists have been warning of the crisis the Earth and all humans on it face if we do not change our ways radically. The Earth's very atmosphere is threatened with frightening possibilities. Absorption of sunlight, upon which the entire life cycle depends, may be diminished. The oceans may warm, increasing the greenhouse effect of the atmosphere, melting the polar ice cap, and destroying our great coastal cities. Stone rushed a copy of his article to the Supreme Court, which was slated to decide the Sierra Club case, to decide, to begin with, whether the Sierra Club had standing to try to block Walt Disney Company from chopping down a forest. Now, sort of by one of those weird coincidences in the world, right at about that time, early in 1972, Dr. Seuss's book, The Lorax, was broadcast on television. You know, the cartoon about a creature who lives in the woods and is trying to stop a lumber company from raising the forest. I speak for the trees. Let them grow. Let them grow. But nobody listens too much, don't you know? No, they don't listen too much. Weeks after the Lorax was broadcast on TV, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in the case of Sierra Club versus Mineral King Valley, issuing a ruling in favor of the Walt Disney Company. Justice William O. Douglas wrote in a dissent that if a ship can be a person under the law, so it should be as respects valleys, alpine meadows, rivers, lakes, estuaries, beaches, ridges, groves of trees, swampland, or even air. In a footnote, he cited Stone's article, Should Trees Have Standing? But Justice Douglas said, but why not just essentially follow Stone's position and let the Mineral King be the plaintiff? Let this should be called Mineral King against Department of Interior. People like the idea that we should be speaking for nature, that nature should have its own voice. People did like that idea. So imagine, what if Douglas's opinion had been not the dissenting opinion of the Supreme Court, but the majority opinion of the Supreme Court? What might have happened next? Imagine that with this incredibly huge legal victory, environmentalists had decided to really fight for an environmental rights amendment. Not the one Gaylord Nelson had proposed in 1970. Imagine they'd proposed something much, much bolder. I mean, imagine, really imagine. Imagine that this crazy, bold constitutional amendment had gotten ratified in 1972. What if today, in 2022, we were marking the 50th anniversary of that environmental rights amendment? To imagine that, I've got to take you to a place I've never taken anyone before. To the Last Archives Fiction Annex. Imagine that in 1971, Christopher Stone and his students at USC Law School 
had drafted a new constitutional amendment, found a way for the law to listen to the trees. Article 1. All legislative powers shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate, a House of Representatives, and a Chamber of Nature. The Chamber of Nature, better known as the Tree Branch. Imagine this thing was ratified by a majority of states, and to help spread the news, Schoolhouse Rock made a song about it so the kids would know. Article 2. Treehouse Rock. The Chamber of Nature shall be composed of members chosen every fourth year by the people of several states. Representation in the chamber shall be apportioned among several states according to trees in the state relative to the number of trees in the state present at the time the state entered the union. Catchy, right? But the idea that apportionment in Congress should be done by counting people, that had been a new idea in 1787 when the Constitution was written. There'd been other ideas at the time. They could have calculated representation by square miles or by taxable income. Why not trees? Imagine the people making this argument were very smart. They argued it very well. They brought out the best evidence. Rallies were held today in all the country's national parks. Activists citing recent reports by the U.S. Forestry Department explained the ability of trees to counter and even reverse the malign effects of pollution. This amendment would have meant that not only did nature have standing in courts the way the Sierra case would have ruled, but that nature, at least by proxy, had a voice in government. That if a state was going to lose vegetation, it would lose votes in Washington. The annual counting of the trees has begun. This new forest census is to take place every July. It follows this spring's frenzy of planting. Some 8 million trees were planted in April alone. The public awaits the results of this first census with bated breath. As states vie for representation in the new so-called tree branch. The Chamber of Nature would have made protecting the environment not something subject to the competing interests of different people, but instead subject to the interests of nature itself. Interesting, right? Now, how in our imaginary world could such a thing come about? That's the easy part to imagine. First, Nixon, the environmental president, gets behind it. I can almost hear him offering his endorsement. By our decision, we will demonstrate the kind of people we are the kind of country we will become. That's why I've charted the course I have laid out tonight. Admittedly, the debate in Congress would have been crazy. The timber trade, against it. Builders, developers, the construction industry, no way. But in favor, a lot of ordinary people and business interests that wanted to stay on the right side of the rising environmental movement. The whole of D.C. would have been one giant environmental rally and counter-rally for weeks. And then, it could have all happened so quickly. 27, the Environmental Rights Amendment, might have passed Congress and gone to the states. And imagine this. Imagine that the last state needed ratified the amendment in 1972. And imagine that the federal government had become answerable to nature a half century ago. 
This week, mining companies are lobbying the Chamber of Nature, seeking exemption from bans on fracking. But the tree branch so far appears to be holding firm. Okay, I'm locking up the annex again. Because this, all of this, none of it happened. What happened instead? After the break. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There is no environmental rights amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We are not today, in 2022, celebrating the 50th anniversary of its ratification. It was never ratified. It was never even written. A lot of other things, though, did happen in the early 1970s, with Richard Nixon's full support. The EPA, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. Still, the environmental movement never really trusted Nixon. Instead, it spurned him, as Dan Rather reported. Several weeks ago, the White House invited the national organizers of Earth Day to drop by for a chat. They refused. On that first Earth Day in 1970, Nixon and his wife, Pat, planted a tree in the White House lawn. And that's it. Pretty soon, Nixon was embroiled in the Watergate scandal. The leaders of the environmental movement, white, middle-class college students and young people, were pretty squarely anti-Nixon for all kinds of reasons, and they didn't ever really seek his support. So it's hard to know how much he might have given. In the end, the establishment, business leaders, the silent majority, opposed the environmental movement. If you looked at TV footage on Earth Day or listened to it, it looked and sounded pretty much like Woodstock. 
And as for what civil rights activists thought about it all, Merle Evers put it this way. I was asked by someone, why is it that you think there are not too many black people participating in Earth Week, in Earth Day? They're interested about the health of themselves and their children when they're living in rat-infested homes, about the garbage that's piled up. CBS News spoke to civil rights leader Herman Rice. He said basically, we have bigger problems. See, we still have hungry children to feed, and we still have houses to try to build, and I think we're taking the emphasis off the uh, beat-up buildings and the uh, polluted streams that they're talking about we've never seen anyway. The trout, I don't know if they're dying. We've never seen that. I know the rats are bigger here. Earth Day, for all of its successes and its huge scale, it still had real limits. It spurned the establishment. It was too white. And then in 1973, the gas crisis began. Not just rising prices, but an actual shortage due to U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and an embargo by OPEC, a consortium of oil-producing nations in the Persian Gulf. Here's a clip from a special NBC News did about the crisis. There's almost unanimous agreement among the experts that the crisis is real, that it's been creeping up on us for about 100 years now, and that it's getting worse each day as we continue to use up our precious supplies of oil, coal, and gas. And by the 1980s, the fossil fuel industry was already organizing itself around an extraordinary project, undermining the science and promoting oil and oil companies as good for the environment. Climate change, pollution, not real, they said. Or at least, not relevant. Exxon, BP, and DuPont, great for the environment. Recently, DuPont announced that its energy unit, Conoco, would pioneer the use of new double-hold oil tankers in order to safeguard the environment. The response has been overwhelmingly positive. DuPont, better things for better living. And as for what happened after that, you probably know what happened next. Rising temperatures, the increasing severity of storms, the forest fires... Why even bother thinking about whether it could have gone another way? No one proposed a tree branch. That is my own cockamamie idea. But why is it a cockamamie idea? What if it could have worked? What would have happened if we'd had a third branch of the legislature, in which representation was proportionate not to people but to trees? States would have had a huge incentive not to cut down forests, or at least not to cut them down without planting new ones. Urban forestry would have grown. Cities would have planted more trees. Suburbs would have provided incentives to homeowners to plant groves instead of lawns. More carbon would have been sequestered. Okay, and obviously that is oversimplifying. A lot of other messy stuff would have happened too. But I've been thinking this last archive season of solutions about the U.S. Constitution and its brittleness. Given the polarization of American politics since the 1970s, it is now effectively impossible to amend the Constitution. But what if it weren't? Could what I have imagined really have happened in the 1970s? I decided to ask world-renowned environmental activist Bill McKibben. We talked about that first Earth Day, in which one in ten Americans took part, the watershed of the environmental movement. Probably the biggest protest in the history of the country. And it wins most of the things that it's asking for right away, you know? The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act— And the air starts 
to get cleaner quickly. And all of a sudden you can swim in lakes and streams that were catching on fire, you know, a few years before. And again, it's Nixon's White House. Nixon yeah. is signing all these bills. Yeah. And he says the 70s are going to be the environmental so, decade in his so State was, of the Union. This was proof, by the way, of the power of that movement, because Nixon literally had not an environmental bone in his body. <laughs> we know from listening to the tapes now huh. that he thought they were all smelly hippies, and, huh. but he had no choice. I mean, <laughs> For four or five years, if you put the word environment in the yeah. title of a bill, it mm -hmm. passed. Mm -hmm. And these were huge, you know, mm -hmm. big things. Mm -hmm. There's still those, I mean, the only legislation that ever really passed about this stuff and the stuff that we still rely on when we try right. to fight pipelines right. and stuff all passed in 1973 and was mm -hmm. signed by Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. And that was true until a few months after I talked to McKibben. Biden signed the first major climate legislation. It did a lot. It did nowhere near enough. McKibben says in the 1970s, Earth Day was, in a way, a victim of its own success. It won the easy things. And then it wasn't able to win the hard ones. Environmentalism stopped being, very early on, a mass movement because it was so successful. After Earth Day 1970, or and within a couple of years, everybody had left the streets because they were winning every bill they put mm -hmm. forward in Congress, every court decision, whatever, and which was great. It was working until it wasn't. And the other side uh, fought back very hard. So the environmental movement moves off the streets and into big institutions. And it's just not prepared either for the strength of the opposition or for the magnitude of the problem. And the problem is that the things that we're addressing are the easy things, it turns out. They're the, um, the problems when something goes a little wrong, like you don't have the right filter on your smokestack or your car or whatever, and you can fix them by putting uh, a catalytic converter in or a scrubber in your smokestack. And it, yeah, it costs a little money, but it's not the end of the world. And once you do that, you've made extraordinary progress. In fact, the pollution that you can see with your eyes begins to disappear. So having solved this one set of things, but without making fundamental shifts in how we ran the world, we were setting ourselves up for much, much deeper trouble. Mm -hmm. We didn't know about climate change yet, but mm -hmm. we were beginning to sense what you know mm -hmm. that, that it was coming. More to the point, it was clear that relying on oil had all kinds of pitfalls. McKibben had a different counterfactual from my whole tree branch thing. Another near miss. Maybe nearly as consequential as my counterfactual. His counterfactual was, what if Jimmy Carter had succeeded in steering the country toward solar power and away from oil? If we had turned away from it in the 1970s, done what Carter wanted to do, mm -hmm. and made this all-out commitment to solar power, well, we would have not solved, but addressed in a fundamental way what now has become the single existential challenge on mm -hmm. planet Earth. So tell me a little bit about what Carter was proposing and what happened to Carter's proposals. So his main message about how we're going to combat this problem is, A, conservation. And there's, you know, there he puts on the sweater and gives the talk from the White House with the temperature 
thermostat turned down. And, and the other thing he's doing is saying we have to figure out ways to power ourselves that, that aren't reliant on fossil fuel, OPEC, the rest of the world. Today, in directly harnessing the power of the sun, we're taking the energy that God gave us and using it to replace our dwindling supplies of fossil fuels. And yet, that didn't happen. Carter put up those solar panels, made that plan, and then Reagan defeated him in 1980. And then Reagan took down those solar panels and scrapped that plan. Carter put on a sweater. Reagan said, turn up the thermostat. This is America. So this is one of these rare, like, counterfactual history things where it's pretty easy to play out what would happen Mm -hmm. if you'd actually done Mm -hmm. it, you know? If we'd done that, if we'd made a serious governmental commitment to doing this, there's no, there was no physical or technological obstacle that would have kept us from developing cheap solar energy in the 1980s and 1990s instead of in the 2010s, which Mm -hmm. is when we finally Mm -hmm. did. You know, it would have been the greatest of gifts to the whole world to have done this Uh, 30 years earlier. Well, we would have been well on the way to knowing what to do and how to deal with it. But of course, we didn't do that. And just as I really can't say what establishing a chamber of nature would have meant, McKibben can't be sure how far solar might have gone if Carter had won re-election in 1980 and stayed the course on solar power. It's still good to dream, though. I told McKibben about our counterfactual, the Lorax, the tree branch, the whole nine yards. I wanted to see what he thought about it. It's not a completely fanciful counterfactual, the idea that things might have broken very differently in the Mm -hmm. 1970s. And it may have been the last chance for things to really break differently. Admittedly, the Chamber of Nature is wacky, calculating political representation by counting trees. But as McKibben pointed out, so is measuring the health of a country with its GDP, its gross domestic product. I mean, governments count stuff. That's mm-hmm. They're going to count something. And if they were counting number of trees or number of eagles or whatever it is, it would have led to a whole different set of outcomes, probably. But the reason is because it would have shifted our sense of what was important. Would it have worked, the tree branch? Political power based on trees? I spec'd it out once using Forest Service reports to calculate which states would have benefited at the start and how different states could have benefited from the incentive to plant more trees, save more forests. What I came up with is that I think it might have thwarted polarization because it's not the usual red state, blue state divide. The season of The Last Archive is about fixes. Fixing the Constitution is not really one of them. What's the problem we're trying to fix here? It's not a scarcity of information, a lack of knowledge, the absence of proof. The evidence for climate change has been everywhere for decades now. Every year, the evidence has grown stronger. And slowly, slowly, so did the environmental movement. There is no planet B. We have a right to have a livable future. So let the youth be heard. Let the youth be heard. Let the youth. The climate change denialists are by now dead and dying. What should have been common knowledge in 1972 is, a half century later, undeniable. Dear representatives of the media, I've seen many scientific reports in my time, but nothing like this. In 2022, a member of the IPCC, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, reported 
that any further delay in concerted global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. Antonio Guterres, head of the IPCC, underscored the point. Today's IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. With fact upon fact, this report reveals how people on the planet are getting clobbered by climate change. This abdication of leadership is criminal. I wanted season three to be upbeat, cheerful, good ideas, solutions. This abdication of leadership is criminal. But I do still think if a window is now closing, there's much to be learned by looking back through the clouded light of other windows. I know people everywhere are anxious and angry. I am too. Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference. And every second counts. 2022 was a year for real, genuine celebration. The first meaningful climate legislation in the United States in more than a generation. It's gone a long way, but it hasn't gone far enough. I don't want my grandchildren to look back at 2022 the way I look back at 1972 and say, oh my God, they were so close. They did so much. They were so close to doing what needed to be done. If only they'd had a little bit more imagination. I don't want to have been close. Close is not enough. The Last Archive is written and hosted by me, Jill Lepore. It's produced by Sophie Crane, Ben Nadafafri, and Lucy Sullivan. Our editors are Julia Barton and Sophie Crane, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jake Gorski is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonet. Our research assistant is Mia Hazra. Our foolproof player is Robert Ricotta. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. The Last Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content like The Last Archivist, a limited series just for subscribers, and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jill Lepore. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. GameBridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.